Welcome back to KPMG's Risk Factors. Following our first podcast partnering with KPMG's Financial Crimes and Analytics team, in this podcast, KPMG Managing Director Jenny Jonas and Wagers Compliance and AML Officer Lauren Lemmer kick off a two-part conversation on the topic of AML and sports betting. Jenny and Lauren start the conversation with a discussion about the growth being observed in the online sports betting industry, how AML programs are being established by new entrants into that industry, and how different those AML programs are from more traditional financial institutions. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode. I'm Jenny Jonas, a Managing Director in KPMG's Financial Crimes and Analytics Practice, and I'm excited to be here today to kick off a two-part conversation all around sports betting and AML, which I think is going to be a particularly interesting conversation given the, the growth um, that's been observed and experienced by the industry at the moment. And today, I'm here with Lauren Lemmer. Uh, I'm really, really excited about this because while our first podcast involved uh, team members from KPMG's Financial Crimes Analytics team uh, talking about the AML Act, today, as I said, I have the opportunity to be here with Lauren, who's Wages, Compliance and AML Director. And largely uh, in, in that role, uh, in charge of helping wage and navigate the creation of their AML program, uh, amongst, of course, many other responsibilities as the company grows. But um, Lauren, thanks so much for, for joining me today. Before we dive into the conversation, though, I want the audience to hear about, about you and Wager. So can you give us um, a bit more information about you and, and your role in the company? Sure. So I'm glad to be here, Jenny. Um, so my role at Wager, like you mentioned, is the compliance and AML officer. Um, and But Wager, and let me spend a minute just talking about Wager, just because it's a little bit different than our traditional mobile sports books. And Wager, what it is, is an upstart operator that's focused on the social betting experience. So rather than betting against the house, you know, the traditional sort of casino structure, you're really betting amongst your friends, your social network. And so it really is a very, you know, experiential um, app. It's all meant to be very delightful with your friends, uh, very engaging, fun. Um, and it made me really excited to move into the sports betting space from the more traditional financial institution space. Um, and it's just a ton of fun. And I think what Wager provides is just a completely different experience than what's been out there so far for the sports bettors and those that have been traditionally non-sports bettors. I think it brings a lot of them into the the market now too. So really the Wager app was built for them. Yeah, it's even making me consider Lauren starting to get into sports betting if I can do it with my friends. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And even um, the more fun part too is you not only get to do it with your friends, it's moving that social experience and those things that already happen outside, you know, on you know, group chats or whatever, and moving them into the wager platform. So it's kind of a one-stop shop for that experience. So it's a ton of fun. It's been a lot of fun being involved in creating it and moving it into market. Yeah, I'm glad you. I'm glad you mentioned about that because it does really allude to to what I'd mentioned very briefly in um, a few minutes ago. Um, this is the growth, right? Mm-hmm. That the sports betting industry is is experienced, particularly over the last four years since. Um, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned uh, PASPA, which made mm-hmm. um, sports betting illegal in all other states apart from Nevada. 
I think I, I think about 30 states now um, have legalized sports betting and about two thirds of them have also legalized online sports betting too. So that market is really there mm-hmm. now. Um, and I think what's interesting is that there are still big states to come. So there's plenty more growth like California, Texas, Florida, even um, even though they've made a little progression, they've kind of gone backwards um, to some extent. But mm-hmm. the, I, th- I think the, the the market that's out there, Lauren Ray, is is quite considerable. I was I was reading a um, an article the other day, which was suggesting that basically more than a third of the U.S. population now has um, access to sports betting from their home, so they don't even have to go out, and that doesn't even count apparently. There are people who can then, over and above that, go to um, go and place in in person yeah. bets um, mm-hmm. at brick and mortar establishments. So there's still a lot of growth, I think, out there to be had. And I think um, earlier this year, right, or uh, I think it was the first weekend in January, New York had gone live with their yeah. mobile sports betting and. Mm-hmm. The volume that they saw in that opening weekend in particular, I think, were, exceeded a lot of people's expectations. Again, I was yeah. um, seeing some metrics on it, 17 million plus transactions, um, which equated to, I think, about 150 million in sports bets, which is kind of incredible. Um, yeah. <laughs> for a market, a geographical market, you know, a New York market that's just getting its first taste of of that um mm-hmm. online sports people are hungry for it yeah yes. people are definitely <laughs> hungry for it well it's really amazing so i mean to your point the industry's really exploded and i think you know certainly i i've never really considered myself a traditional sports better certainly you know i've i've gone to vegas and gone to a sports book and kind of stared at this intimidating wall of numbers before um, but what's been interesting in the last few years is just how normalized the discussion around sports betting has become. Um, you know, it used to be sort of in that taboo or sin business type of um, view. And it's interesting, you you know, you turn on the TV and certainly, you know, the, the folks that are in New York and New Jersey and some of those really big mobile sports betting states um, you know, probably are always seeing ads on their television now uh, specific to sports betting. But even when I am, and I am based in Texas where sports betting is not legal yet, um, when I turn the TV on and I'm watching ESPN, there are dedicated segments specifically talking about uh, the money lines, the stats, what the projections are, you know, what the overs are expected to be. And so it's just become part of the conversation in a much more open way. And so you know, I think it's been really interesting for me to see as, again, a non-traditional sports better sitting with wager particularly, which is, you know, the idea being for non-traditional sports betters moving them into the wager platform, is really seeing just how comfortable people are starting to get on talking about sports. And when we legalize it, we can tax it. And that's not dissimilar to, I think, what we've seen in cannabis in some of the states. I, I personally think sports betting is uh, a lot less taboo to talk about than cannabis, but you know, it's, it's again, kind of part of the economy now for a lot of States. And so I, I think it's great. So, yeah, I think Lauren is going to be really interesting to see how the financial services industry kind of reacts to that evolution, right. In the conversation around those topics, because um, certainly there was a point in time where um, many financial institutions just 
refuse to open accounts for um, companies that existed right. and operated in the cannabis industry. I'm sure it's a similar <laughs> experience from a sports betting perspective, or in fact, mm -hmm. people who wanted to use their account um, for sports betting. Um, they probably shied away from, or they did shy away from, from um, at least allowing those types of transactions to occur through right. their um, through their um, financial institutions' accounts. So it's going to be interesting to see how the how the the conversation evolves around um, sports betting. Mm -hmm. um, and and you, like you said, the the you know that it was tab you know that it's taboo or becomes less taboo over the course of the years to come. I think I think Goldman Sachs um, has a lot of confidence that it'll go that way. Uh, I think they were predicting that um, in a decade or so, uh, sometime in. Uh, 2030 uh, plus that the industry is going to be somewhere in the region of like 39 billion in revenue so they and and, and right now um, or at least last year um, we were we were looking at a market that was valued I think at around a billion right so there's some, some real substantial growth there over the course yeah. of 10 years how, how does all this growth potential Lauren, influence how you're um, building your AML program? Well, I think about it all of the time because with the industry growth that as a, at a macro level is going on, I would, you know, reason to believe and hope that Wager will experience that similar growth. And so when I entered my role at Wager, it was obviously before we launched. So when it came down to putting pen to paper on that AML program, a lot of it in mind was really no different than what any other financial institution or certainly like the traditional banks, my approach would be for there. I mean, at the end of the day, the five pillars are the same. The expectation around preventative and detective controls around your risks are very important. And so there is a little bit of a blend of having a program that at least at least matches where we are from a product perspective, since we are still pretty young in our journey, relatively speaking, but also being ready to scale that compliance program quickly to accommodate what may be very rapid growth. And so that's not dissimilar to what the banking industry is seeing in certain um, industries, like the mortgage industry obviously went through some big booms and then some subsequent crashes. And so obviously, you know, I think a wise compliance officer uses the experience from others, um, you know, particularly financial institutions in this regard, and tries to extrapolate those experiences in, in making them really lessons learned. So that when they're being, these programs are being built, they're being built correctly rather than being in a position to, to obviously have to fix things. So um, the way I typically see myself at, at Wager as a compliance officer is, you know, I don't want to be the one to say no to everything. And that's certainly, you know, not what I'm known to be at Wager. But I do try to really reinforce my role as a seatbelt to allow us to continue to move fast, but in a way that's safe and ultimately can accommodate whatever market growth we're anticipating, whatever product developments we're doing. Um, so that we are ready to move fast when when the time comes. And, and we are, frankly, moving pretty fast. And I feel good about the program that we've built so far to uh, appropriately manage the risks that come from that growth. 
And there's there's not a ton of operators in the space, right? In the mobile sports betting space. So do you see them um, in your interactions with them applying similar tactics to how they build out their AML program, being that you know they're keeping their eye on the the, the future, the bigger um, the bigger growth that they'll experience, the bigger organization that they'll become uh, as they are also formulating their AML programs as well. And just, I, I, I mean, I'm working on the assumption, Lauren, that there, there is that conversation, that collaboration um, mm-hmm. across um, similar organizations. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's interesting. It's a huge industry, but, but to your point, there's really not a lot of players in it. Um, as you can imagine, you know, any highly regulated industry like the gaming industry is, it, the barriers to entry are fairly high. It's, it's an expensive business to, to be in between licensing fees, um, obviously the technical component of it, staffing, there's legal, there's regulatory elements. It, it's an expensive business, but, but obviously uh, there is a perceived payoff to all of this. Um, but it, all that to say, despite how large the industry is, there's, there's really not many of us, um, relatively speaking. And so there is this immense community that I think has been built within the operator space. Um, and actually that I think transcends into the daily fantasy sports as well. Although daily fantasy is not explicitly considered gambling, there is a lot of similarity between the worlds. And so, um, I have colleagues that I reached out to frequently in both the mobile betting operator space and the daily fantasy space. And, you know, we pick each other's brains on what it is that we're seeing. You know, perhaps there's specific players that, uh, you know, seem to be doing behavior that doesn't appear legitimate. So there's a lot of that collaboration. Again, not dissimilar to what we have in the financial institution space with the 314Bs. Um, we have that sort of network uh, amongst the compliance folks and the operators. Um, and that actually transcends really well into the relationship that I personally have with our state regulators. The sports betting space is new for a lot of states. It's it's still fairly new in Tennessee, which is where we have our gaming license. And I cannot speak highly enough of the experiences and the interactions that I've had with our partners on the regulatory side in Tennessee in terms of having just very open dialogue, getting advice, um, providing input into even the regulations as they're being drafted. It really keeps the industry, I think, moving forward by having such collaborative relationships, not only within the industry itself, but within the regulatory context as well. And so, um, that's my quick plug on just how immensely beneficial the collaboration is, you know, a- amongst all of the swim lanes in the the mobile betting ecosystem. Yeah, that's 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 great to hear, uh, Lauren, for an industry that is relatively in its infancy, certainly compared to the financial <laughs> services industry. It's good to hear that, that that level of positive collaboration is is there um you you touched on you know some of the expectations of an aml program for a sports betting organization so uh yeah the expectations being 
that the individuals responsible for email compliance, they have the authority, the um, resources, right, to effectively run the program, training, that there's monitoring, that you're reporting suspicious activities, right, all, all of that um, uh, traditional, if you will, um, expectations of, a, of an AML program. But I'm, I'm really keen to understand, especially from your perspective, Lauren, because you've had both the uh, exposure now to the traditional, you know, trans- uh, uh, financial institution, um, and also now to a to a sports betting organization. What are some of the key differences between AML programs at those types of institutions? And maybe we can just take like a um, a retail banking institution as an example, because um, I'm really keen to get your perspective on that. Yeah, so that's a good question. It's something that I thought a lot about as I moved into the sports betting space directly. I think at the end of the day, if you were to really break it down, there isn't as much of a difference between retail banking and mobile sports betting as there may have been 10 years ago. And the reason I say that is because retail banking has moved much more online, um, other there's still there isn't that face to face interaction um, in either of those scenarios. So, you know, 10, 15 years ago in retail banking, you had the face to face interactions with your customers. You you got to know not only them from a banking perspective, but from a personal perspective, because, you know, Joe Schmo came in every Wednesday to deposit his paycheck all of those experiences have started to kind of dwindle down in the retail banking space. And, and so similarly in mobile sports betting, we don't see these people directly in person. Um, and again, like my last financial institution was primarily in the digital space. There, there really weren't brick and mortar branches um, in the same way that, you know, a, an old school uh, traditional bank would have. And so a lot of those kind of what would be perceived as maybe the obvious differences between retail banking and mobile sports betting, I think they're starting to, to go away. I think they're very similar. And so when I think about the AML risk at, at wager at a sports book, I think of it really no different than in banking and, and really coming at it from doing a risk assessment based off of the classic risk areas, the product types you offer the geographical regions that you offer your product or, you know, your customers may live, the types of customers you're getting, et cetera. And so even though with sports betting, there are some obvious limitations, not everyone can place a sports bet just because of our, the age requirements, you know, you you must be 21 and over for a lot of the jurisdictions in the U S for example, um, there may be more kind of refined uh, portfolios of risk, but what those risks are are really no different. Um, certainly from a transaction perspective, you're not going to see the exotic types of things that you would see at a retail bank, uh, like wire activity, you know, cashing checks. Like that obviously doesn't apply in sports betting. Um, in sports betting, you have different indicators of money laundering, uh, primarily focused around minimal gaming. And and what that is, is you make a deposit into a sports betting platform, you either play very little with that money that you deposited or don't play at all, and you withdraw those funds. And, you know, essentially, you can call those 
winnings from gambling, even if you didn't actually play with those funds. So that's kind of the most classic example of what money laundering is through a sports book or, or really any casino, that's the case. Um, but otherwise, I think that approach to assessing your risk, building controls around those risks, um, it's the same from a fundamental standpoint in sports betting as it is in traditional banking. And I think that's the key. You know, there's so many lessons that we've learned from banking on different regulatory enforcement actions or concerns that, again, like I mentioned earlier, a lot of it comes down to taking those as lessons learned and really using that to guide uh, the actions and the programs that are built on the sports betting side. Yeah. Very often when new products come in to the market, it's often some variation on what's been seen before. And mm -hmm. uh, there's such a, a vast array of and wealth of information out there that can be gleaned um, from regulatory actions, regulatory feedback, you know, speeches at conferences that can really inform um, how you view the risk of a of a product or a transaction type. Um, that doesn't mean you're starting from scratch. Um, so I 100% agree with you on the fact that there's a lot to be leveraged and a lot of lessons to be learned. There's been many um, publications, um, not just from industry um, organizations, uh, sports betting and gaming industry organizations, but also from the regulators themselves on AML risk and the fact there's going to be more focus, particularly from a regulatory perspective, um, on the AML risks associated with sports betting. Um, and of course, we've already st uh, seen um, uh, enforcement actions be taken against some gaming organizations. I'm assuming that this regulatory focus does help somewhat, Lauren, even though maybe others think it, you know, maybe have a, have a, a less than positive um, uh, impact. I, I feel I feel like it must when it's when you're setting up an AML program, and certainly when you're looking at an industry that's growing, um, to have that source of information, that feedback from the regulators um, coming through consistently and constantly. Yeah, it, it does, and certainly I would never wish an enforcement action on any uh, any of my colleagues. Certainly, but there is a gift that comes from that, I think. And it's a it's a good warning shot, so to speak, in providing kind of a blueprint to others to really listen to, to know and to, to prompt them to look internally at their own programs to see what opportunities there may be to strengthen based off of things that, you know, pro prove themselves to be weak at you know, the institution that got the regulatory enforcement action or clearly areas that are of heightened focus for the regulators directly. And so um, it's always unfortunate to, to see the enforcement actions, but having, uh, you know, lived on the side of an enforcement action at prior financial institutions, I, I can also say that they've ultimately made those organizations stronger. So even for the organization itself, it's a, it's a blessing. And I know that's kind of hard to stomach at the time, but, but it really is. Um, but also as a compliance officer for an upstart operator, um, that external scrutiny, uh, it's hard to miss. And so what that's done for me is it's really helped, I think, 
the whole wager organization as a group of employees take compliance very seriously. So in a lot of ways, it made my job easy. Um, I think I was the seventh employee to be hired at wager. Um, so one of the early early hires, uh, in fact, I think I was the first non-engineer hire at wager. And so that actually speaks volumes to the culture of compliance that the two founders of wager really had to know that despite being several months away from launching, despite still having kinks to work out from a product perspective, it was important to get a compliance officer in their seat uh, to build a program, you know, with sufficient time, appropriate yeah. resources, et cetera. And so, uh, you know, all that to say, when there are enforcement actions, I think it's who of anybody to listen to those. And I, I think it's a real testament to uh, the leaders at Wager to have listened to that sort of scrutiny and to have acted upon it when they brought me in. And obviously, I'm very happy to be at Wager. Again, it's, 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 it's really good to hear that lessons from, you know, traditional financial institutions are being teased and pulled through into the sports betting industry because I, you're, you're, you're right, Lauren, they, some of the um, greatest AML teams have really paid attention to those regulatory enforcements actions and the commentary that's coming through from um, the regulators and really done like a solid analysis on where they stand relative to the issues that are being spoken about or mm -hmm. um, documented um, and it's really been of benefit to them to keep their eye on those developments, on those, um, on that source of information to really build a robust AML program. Um, so it's 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 great to hear that that's like I said, uh, something that's being replicated in the sports betting space as well. Um, Lauren, I think we've run out of time today, which I'm really sad to say because I was really enjoying our conversation. Um, but thank you for joining me today, Lauren, and offering your insights on you know, the industry, the, 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 the way you're establishing your AML program. Um, do you have any final uh, words before we, we wrap up the, the podcast today? No, other than to say, I am so glad you invited me here today to, to share a little bit about my experience at Wager and what it's been like to build out an AML program that, you know, I, I think is best in class, really. Um, and, you know, it's a, sports betting is an inherently really fun space, and I would encourage anyone who is interested in it uh, from an AML background to take a look at it. There's a lot of opportunities there. Um, like you mentioned, Jenny, a lot of growth in the industry. And so I would expect that uh, we'll see a lot of job opportunities coming that way as well. So really great to be here. Thank you, Jenny. Oh, no problem, Lauren. Um, if anyone listening to this podcast has any questions uh, about the industry, about job opportunities, like Lauren said, um, please don't hesitate to reach out to Lauren or I. Uh, I want to take a moment to thank everyone who's tuned in to listen to this podcast. Uh, we'd mentioned, I'd mentioned at the top of the podcast, um, we have a second part to this topic, Sports Better Than AML, where KPMG's Jordan Klovsky and Jonathan Fishner from Fangio will be talking a little bit more about certain components of um, a sports betting AML program. Uh, things that we touched on today, that Lauren touched on today, 
like transaction monitoring and going into a bit more detail about some of the things to consider uh, when you're performing those types of functions, when you're setting up those types of functions for a sports betting organisation. So it's going to be another great conversation and a continuation of the the fun dialogue um, that we've had today. Again, thanks to everyone for joining us and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to KPMG's Risk Factors. Be sure to subscribe to the series and for more information, go to the URL in the episode description.